Uh, my name is Narelle Hooper. I'm chairing the, the next session, and I'm delighted that you've crammed in here on a, such a beautiful, sunny day. Um, and speaking of dangerous ideas and, and important questions, what happens after the luck is the topic of our discussion for the next hour. And our guest speaker is Miriam Lyons. And I, just briefly, just to set the scene, Australia, we know, um, had a massive mining boom in, uh, since 2003. Now, we've shifted into the next phase of that. We didn't make the most of it. And what happens now? Um, other sectors have wound down. We need to do some things differently. So I'm hoping we can get your input for this d discussion. Miriam Lyons has been asking a number of dangerous questions, a very powerful questions. She's a policy analyst and writer and commentator and co-founder and executive director of the Centre for Policy Development and it's a public interest think tank. She's been a regular guest uh, on the ABC shows uh, Q&A, The Drum. She's contributed to several media outlets. She's also co-edited several books. Now, there's a bit of a theme going on here, you can tell. Pushing our luck was the first one. More than luck was the second one. Today, the talk is after luck. Now, her earlier roles have included at, uh, being at, the, as the editor at New Matilda, researching freedom of speech in East Timor and organising ideas festivals, which is where you get this great kind of fulmination of discussion. The genesis for this topic, though, uh, today was chapter 11 of her latest book, which she co-wrote with Ian McCauley, and that's a book on governomics on the role that governments can and should play in shaping a country's economic structure. So Miriam's going to speak for about 35 minutes and then we're going to take some time to come together and have some questions. So I'm really looking forward to your input. So would you put your hands together and please welcome Miriam Lyons. Please. Thanks so much, Narelle. Um, and I, I, sorry, I really should point out, it keeps on turning back up in my bio, but I'm no longer the executive director of the oh. Centre for Policy Development. But that was that was my oh. past, like, kind of full-time paid gig. You um, were working. I was, I was, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah look, so I, I'm just delighted that the Sydney Opera House has invited me to here to talk about the apocalypse and why we should welcome it. It's great. <laughs> Um, end of the world, I'm in favour, you know, lots of, lots of fire, I'm a bit of a pyro, love seeing falling rocks from the sky, utterly excellent. Sorry, wrong, wrong speech. Um, <laughs> right, so, end of the mining boom. I've got good news and I've got bad news. The bad news is the party is over and the hangover is kicking in. It was a fun party while it lasted, at least for those who got the invite, but Australia's once-in-a-lifetime mining investment boom is behind us and we pretty much pissed it up against a wall. Now, the good news is the end of the boom is not the end of the world. The only thing that is standing between us and a lastingly livable Australia is a small co cohort of politicians and lobby groups who are so short-sighted that they treated a temporary boom as if it were a permanent bonanza. Seriously, we can think rings around these guys. 
I have absolute confidence that the people in this room and across the country can overcome the obstacles lying between us and a future where our work is more satisfying, our leisure more abundant, our incomes more secure, our air cleaner, soils healthier, climate safer, cities more livable and our regions more resilient. We can do this. But first, Let's just take a closer look at what it means to live with a mining boom here and around the world. I'm going to kick off with Nauru. When Nauru gained independence in 1968, its people had the highest per capita incomes in the world. It's a tiny island state with only eight square miles of land, but it was sitting on one of the world's richest sources of phosphate. Generations of birds had gifted the island with their nutrient-rich droppings. First the colonists, then the locals became rapidly and exceedingly wealthy by digging up the ground beneath their feet. Now it's among the poorest countries in the world. A history of exploitation, including by us, left Nauru with few economic choices, and its sources of revenue are now so rare that it makes headlines when it finds a new one, from selling passports and laundering dodgy money to hosting companies like Transfield, which profit from punishing refugees on Australia's behalf. Nauru's population grew sick on a diet of imported processed food, with some of the highest rates of obesity and diabetes in the world. And having sacrificed their best farmland to mining, that's a situation they're finding hard to reverse. Former President Marcus Stephen has described his home as an indispensable cautionary tale about life in a place with hard ecological limits. On the other side of the world, Norway chanced upon a resource that could make its people rich. Norway's reaction to its discovery of North Sea oil in the 1960s is often cited as a really great example of how a country can make its good luck last. Norway it basically treats companies like the plumber, the mining companies that come and extract its oil. They're there to do a difficult and a dirty job. They need enough money to do that, but nobody is confused about who owns the resources. Norway taxes petroleum firms at a rate of around 78%. It puts the proceeds into a sovereign wealth fund, which is kind of like a trust fund for citizens, and it has around $900 billion under management now. That fund owns almost 1% of the world's stocks. Now, Australia. Australia is a bit fond of a flutter. We've turned a horse race into a de facto national holiday and we commemorate our armed forces' unluckiest day in the First World War with games of two-up, a two-pennied salute to the gods of chance. Australia has undoubtedly benefited from the resources lying under the land that we nicked from its original inhabitants, but we have not yet been as successful as Norway in transferring our minerals, transforming our minerals into a legacy that we can all share. We may have been better at making our luck last than Nauru, but our leaders are still playing dice with destiny. Judging by the policies of the current federal government, it is betting that the mining investment boom will make a surprise comeback, that the housing bubbles in Sydney and Melbourne will never burst, that the global momentum for action on climate change will dissolve, and Australia will escape the extreme weather that follows if it does. Now, just to be crystal clear, because I know I'm going to get asked this, I am not suggesting that Australia hasn't benefited materially from the boom or that managing the end of it will be easy. Instead, I'm making two main points. 
Firstly, over the long term, we, by which I mean the majority of Australians both in and outside the mining sector, as opposed to the small number of individuals and firms who own mines, would have benefited more from a slower boom, with higher mining taxes and a sovereign wealth fund to help insulate the rest of Australia's economy from the impact of mining investment on the dollar. A slower boom could have a lot of benefits. For one thing, there is no need to put up with the social and environmental side effects of ripping the bowels out of the earth with frenzied speed. This is a lesson that we should learn from and act on now so that we're better prepared when the price of iron ore and other resources rises once again. Secondly, we need to imagine Australia's place in a coal-free world. Thermal coal may be entering a structural decline. The price of cleaner alternatives is dropping rapidly and more countries are taking action on climate change. A carbon-constrained world means less demand for our fossil fuels. We should be talking now about how to deal with that instead of trying to just kind of put our hands over our eyes and pretend it isn't happening. Now, anybody, anybody still read the newspapers here? Hands, newspapers, yes, excellent, up the back. Go, guys. Murdoch is grateful. Um, no, did anybody see the front pages of the news, uh, the front pages of the papers this week uh, talking about how Australia's economy is doing right now? Latest GDP growth figures, anyone? Yeah, how, how'd you feel? Can I get a call out? <laughs> I think someone is that happy. <laughs> Look, I, I think now is the point. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for those who didn't hear that, um, uh, the um, woman in the second row from the front just said she's really glad that Australia is open for business and uh, good government is, is succeeding. Um, yeah, look, uh, you know, given the state of the economy right at this minute, uh, it kind of seems like an appropriate moment to ask whether it is better to have boomed and bust than never to have boomed at all. The investment phase of the mining boom was a mixed blessing. It was often exaggerated, it was partly offset by its cost, costs, and it was never going to be permanent. But there is no denying that it delivered a major boost to growth, to investment, to national income during a very difficult decade for the global economy. The main problem is that we dealt with its benefits wastefully and its side effects blindly, and we failed to plan for its inevitable end. So, just a quick recap, and I'm really sorry, folks, this bit's going to involve graphs. Um, at its peak in 2013, mining investment made up almost 8% of Australia's gross domestic product. That contributed to growth as well as to overall economic confidence. On the other hand, because the sector is 80% foreign-owned, most of the profits head straight back offshore. All of the investment that you're seeing there did come with jobs, mostly very well-paid ones. Not nearly as many jobs, though, as we tend to assume, and it did also lead to job losses in other areas. Many people find it hard to believe that a sector that so dominates our front pages employs only 2% of the workforce, 2.4% at its peak. A survey by the Australia Institute a few years back found that most of us thinks, think that mining employs nine times more workers than it does. Mining has always been a capital-intensive industry, heavy on machinery and light on people, and it's getting more so over time. 
Now, because the mining workforce is so small, the main benefit to most working Australians came via increased purchasing power. In other words, a whole bunch of things from clothes to chars to cars, from laptops to international holidays, got cheaper in real terms. Probably all remembered, you know, looking with glee at, you know, the price of things that you could order on Amazon during that time. Um, so, researchers at the Reserve Bank looked at what a stronger dollar meant for people's hip pockets. And, you know, it add, basically it adds up to real money. Uh, real per capita disposable income was by boosted by around 13% compared to what it would have been without the boom. Now, of course, that bo boost was not all evenly distributed. We can talk about that a bit more later. Um, and if you look at the timing of the peak in this graph, you'll notice that Australia's current economic hassles have been brewing under the surface for a while now. Now, it has been argued that we wisely squirrelled away a lot of that extra cash, given that the household savings rate increased. I wonder whether that's the whole story, particularly in light of this graph from a recent presentation by the Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank, who warned that increased land prices are not the same thing as increased wealth. He pointed out that, as far as we know, Australia didn't actually create any more land during that time. So, does saving really count as saving if it's inflating a housing bubble? The federal government also screwed up on this front, with the Howard and Rudd governments responding to a temporary revenue spike with a permanent income tax cuts. Not only were these cuts unfairly distributed, disproportionately benefiting the rich, they also explain a large part of the structural deficit in Australia's budget today. When the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. We also did not collect as much revenue from mining companies as we could or should have. I won't revisit the mining tax debate now, except to say that the outcome of it was that we allowed a handful of companies making windfall profits to tell us that they will decide the prices they pay us for our resources in this country and the circumstances under which they pay them. And not only do we fail to charge enough when we sell off the family silver, we often go further and subsidise those who bundle it up and carry it away. Finally, there's the problem of what a high dollar does to other trade-exposed sectors, otherwise known as the Dutch disease or the Gregory effect, if you're particularly geeky. Um, a higher dollar is great if you're buying a new TV or taking an overseas holiday, but it's a bit bad if you're running a local tourism business or studying at a university subsidised by full fee-paying international students. It's also bad if you're attempting to compete with cheap imports in agriculture or manufacturing, especially if you have to compete with mining employers who can afford to pay higher wages. And this may help explain why our employment in those industries went down quite dramatically uh, in the boom, mining boom states of WA and Queensland. Over time, successive resource price spikes tend to ratchet up our dependence on the resource sector while hollowing out every other sector that exports. The result is that a mining boom can be kind of like a Midas curse for the broader economy. Everything that it touches turns to coal. Now, speaking of coal, I've got some bad news for Tony Abbott. Coal is not good for humanity, nor is it a solid foundation for our prosperity. 
Also, there's no Santa Claus. Um, Look, while that may be disappointing news for Tony Abbott, it's unlikely to surprise the 20,000 coal mining workers who have already been sacked since coal jobs peaked at 60,000 a few years ago. And the people, who in ta- people in the towns who are affected by this deserve our support, like all the other people out of work in a country where there are five job seekers for every vacancy. They should be treated with respect, they should be given practical help, and they should not be blamed for their bad luck. The precariousness of coal as a source of prosperity is also unlikely to surprise the owners of the existing mines, who might be secretly hoping that the president of Kiribati's call for a moratorium on new coal mines succeeds. Right now, restricting supply is about the only thing that might rescue their share prices. Possibly should have thought of that before they produced so much of it that it drove the price down in the first place, but hey, that's how the commodity cycle works. This delightful fixer-upper is called Isaac Plains. It's a coal mine in Queensland, and it was sold last month or in July, I think. Um, Can I get people in the audience, does anybody want to guess how much this mine sold for? One dollar! Sold to a whole bunch of people towards the front of the audience. Well done. Um, Now, I'm I'm singling coal out here, and particularly thermal coal, because there's good evidence that it's entering what experts call a secular decline. In other words, economically, it's an ex-parrot. Not resting, not pining for the fields. In fact, incidentally, the fjords aren't pining for coal either. You remember the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund that I mentioned earlier? Divested from coal this year. In the words of US banking giant Citigroup, on the demand side, we think thermal coal is cyclically and structurally challenged and that current market conditions are likely to persist. Now, Australia's economy is actually in a pretty good position to deal with this. The biggest impact is on export revenue, and at the moment, thermal coal is just 5% of our exports. Coal's slice of GDP is also pretty small. It's around 1.4%. In terms of employment, we're looking at about 0.3% of our workforce, or about the same as our motion picture and sound recording industry. There's quite a few reasons that we should expect coal to go the way of whale oil as a fuel source. For starters, coal kills people, and not just a few people. An estimated 800,000 people a year die early from the health impacts of burning coal. In China alone, there are around 670,000 deaths a year from air pollution, with coal being one of the major culprits. Just going to play you guys a little scene. Oh, hang on. Play you guys a little scene from a movie now. Um, I, I think the guys out the back of the stage might do something magic any moment now so that we can watch a tiny little scene from a wildly popular documentary called Under the Dome. Let's see. Now, that doco came out, I think, earlier this year. It was downloaded 200 million times in its first week. Um, 
This is a really big motivating factor for everything that China is currently doing to try and cap its coal use. Uh, just last week, China passed changes to its anti-pollution laws, including new powers to punish offenders and a legal framework for capping the consumption of coal, which is the biggest source of the smog, smog that was blocking that girl's view of the sky. Secondly, we may not be taking climate change very seriously, but our key trading partners are. The raw numbers are that 80% of fossil fuels need to stay in the ground if we're to head off climate change. Or, as the Australian Institute's Richard Dennis put it, if the world wants to tackle climate change and Australia wants to double its coal exports, somebody is going to lose. This image here shows us how much more fossil fuel the world could burn while still having a halfway decent chance of keeping warming under two degrees, which in itself is a pretty risky target. Now, that little grey circle on the left, that's our remaining carbon budget for the whole planet. The big circles on the right, they show carbon dioxide tied up in the world's known reserves of coal, gas and oil. And I look at that image and I think, hmm, OK, Let's be optimistic. I'm pretty optimistic. I'd like to give, you know, the human civilization as we know it, even odds of not being suicidal. So let's assume that the world manages to stick within the budget. Oil, gas, coking coal, which is used to make steel, they are all going to be way ahead of coal-fired power in the queue to take up space in that tiny little circle on the left. Also, turns out, people quite like renewable energy. Might be something to do with the whole not killing people or turning the sky brown thing, I don't know. Good marketing ploy. Um, the price of most renewables has come down much faster than anyone expected, and they're winning the race with fossil fuels for new investment. On top of this, energy use is starting to go backwards in the developed world. Now, in this context, <laughs> did try and find a picture of Tony Abbott to stick on that, <laughs> ran out of time. Um, in, this, in this context, describing coal as the foundation of prosperity is the equivalent of talking up the future of the horse and cart industry just as the first Fords roll off the lines. Um, can I just do a quick time check here? How are we going? This is, we're going to talk for ages, guys. It's going to be great. Um, you know, does anybody know the story of, of Kodak? Um, uh, the fact that Kodak actually had uh, somebody who invented the digital uh, photography on their staff um, and then, uh, you know, kind of forgot, forgot about that and, you know, was a little bit worried about it undermining the core business of film-based uh, photography and then it went bankrupt in 2012. Um, and, you know, there's something about Australia's early pioneering role in solar technology and what we've done since then that just rings bells, it rings bells. Um, everyone knows at least a little bit of Donald Horne's lucky country quote, right? Um, and so any, anybody here from Newcastle? Hey, right, um, you know the lucky country pub? Uh, I sometimes like to think that the good residents of Newcastle have um, Donald Horne in mind when they leave the RY off the end of the country. Um, so, 
here's the whole quote. Australia is a lucky country run mainly by second-rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas, and although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders so lack curiosity about events that surround them that they are often taken by surprise. Remind you, anyone, any governments you might be aware of? Um, Look, you know, we, we know this, right? A, a boom based on non-renewable resources, by definition, is not going to last. It's not going to be permanent. But in politics, the word permanent can have a slightly different definition. It can be something like until after the other mob gets in. So, where to now? First, stop attempting to perform CPR on the thermal coal sector. In the Monty Python School of Industry Policy, it wouldn't zoom if you put four million volts through it. <laughs> Second, let's start planning now and acting now for the next boom. The price for iron ore and other mineral ores will go up again at some point. I honestly, I don't see what the rush is. We're heading towards a global population of 9 or 10 billion people. A lot of them are going to want wind turbines, laptops, railway lines. There is absolutely no reason to flog our remaining minerals off like the last wheelless pram at the end of a long garage sale. You know, the thing you like, you, you wake up in the morning um, and, and you, you're putting on your garage sale and first you, like, you bargain really hard with the people who turn up at 6am super, super keen to get all of your bargains and then, you know, later on you're starting to get a little bit more flexible with the prices and at the end of the day you're like, please, I'll give you free beer if you take all of this extra stuff away and save me another trip to Vinnie's. We're acting a little bit like this with our mineral resources and I, I just don't get it. You know, uh, despite any threats that some of you may have made after the last federal election, Australia's population is not going to get up en masse and move to New Zealand. We're not going anywhere. We don't have to have a moving sale. Now, I have a theory. This might be a controversial theory, but let me try it out on you. Now that the prices are low again, it could be a good time to reintroduce the idea of a profits-based nationwide mining tax. Um, now, this is a strange thought, right? But Bear with me for a moment. The Minerals Council of Australia originally supported the idea of a profits-based resource rent tax. Um, it's the kind of design for mining taxation that means it goes harder on miners during boom times and softer on miners during the downturns when prices are low. Uh, now that prices are low, um, given how short-sighted they were when prices were high, maybe they'll be equally short-sighted now and go, great, all right, we'll support this scheme because, you know, it means less tax right, right now at this minute. Um, just a thought. Uh, to make everything a bit simpler to understand this time, we could extend the 40% petroleum resource rent tax that currently applies to oil and gas projects so that it covers coal and minerals as well. If that slows the next boom down, good. It might have fewer side effects. Third, it's time to get a bit serious about government's role in shaping the economy. Now, forget the line about governments being bad at picking winners. It's usually trotted out by people who are perfectly happy to go on backing losers. 
There's the uncontroversial stuff, like upping investment in education and training, in research and development, in transport infrastructure, the International Monetary Fund, one of its recommendations of what Australia should be doing right now is have more publicly funded investments in uh, the kind of infrastructure that Australia is going to need. That would be a great way to soak up some of the spare capacity that's now going unused after the end of the investment boom. Um, this, this is a really sensible idea. Having a great infrastructure prime minister might be a good start. How about we build a real national broadband network? Okay, may, maybe that one's a bit contentious. Um, I also think that we need governments to roll up their sleeves and help entire sectors, and in some cases individual firms, to anticipate and to adjust to new trends and new opportunities. Now, there are obviously better and worse ways of doing this. Giving in for decades, when global car makers, some of the world's most successful standover merchants, turn up to governments cap in hand with the politely worded equivalent of your money or the jobs get it, um, that's not great industry policy. Bad idea. The federal government's new diversification fund, which is helping car parts suppliers retool to make other things, pretty good idea, I reckon. So far, so good. Um, quick good news story on this front. Heliostat South Australia, SA, are former suppliers to the auto industry who have gone solar. They received assistance from the Diversification Fund to form an alliance with the CSIRO to make parts for concentrated solar thermal power projects using the same pressed metal equipment that they previously used for making car parts. What if we could have a similar diversification fund for manufacturers that supply the mining industry? Um, now, in the words of physicist Niels Bohr, prediction is difficult, especially about the future. Um, we can't know for certain that another boom or a return of the boom isn't just around the corner. Maybe increased volume will compensate for lower prices. Maybe coal will get so laughably cheap that people start ignoring its downsides again. What we do know is that Thanks to Dutch disease, we have one of the least diverse export profiles of any developed country in the world. That's the fifth least diverse after the end of the mining boom. Um, thermal coal is only 5% of our exports, but coking coal is 7 and iron ore is a much bigger deal at 20%. Um, now, that kind of, uh, you know, all of the eggs in the one export basket strategy, it is risky um, and it's not inevitable. We know that commodity markets are inherently volatile um, and they're also getting more so. This is some um, research that the Centre for Policy, from a, some research that the Centre for Policy Development did uh, a little while back, um, pointing out that resource volatility has tripled um, over the past uh, 30 years or so. Um, now, that's that's something that makes life particularly difficult for um, exporters who are in other sectors, right? So as long as Australia's exports are dominated by a couple of resources shipped to a single region of the world, the Australian dollar will be volatile as well, which will keep making life difficult for businesses in every other exporting sector. It's quite hard to plan ahead in that context, 
right? So the, 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 we are starting to see some signs of life in some of the other non-mining exporting sectors now, but they're not bouncing back nearly as quickly as we like. And there's a lot of evidence that firms who are exporting, they face one-off costs, right, for establishing themselves in global supply chains. So you can't just assume, you can't just lie back and think of Caratha during a boom and hope that everything will be fine in the morning. We also know that competing on costs, which is what commodity exporters tend to have to do, you know, it's hard to add that much extra value to a lump of coal. Um, you know, there's some other things that we do. Australia's quite good on the reliability side, a few other things. But competing on costs tends to have unpleasant side effects for workers and for the environment. Competing on value would be way more fun for everyone. Um, and, and this is why I think that the usual solutions that are trotted out about what we should do right now, a whole lot of them are in that let's compete on cost mindset. You know, let's, let's smash any unions that we can find that are left. You know, let, let, let's, let's see what we can do, um, you know, to, to privatise a few more things and deregulate a few more other things. Um, not fun, not fun for us. Uh, uh, you don't want to win a race to the bottom. Um, so that's the last graph for today, promise. Um, incidentally, is anybody coming to Dennis Glover's talk this afternoon, Winners and Losers? Hello, 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 I'll see you there. Um, we, can keep, we can keep talking. Um, uh, so he'll be talking about his new book, An Economy is Not a Society. It's kind of an obvious point, but it's very easy to forget. Um, it's always important to recognise that numbers that look good on paper may not be so great on the ground. Um, and speaking of that, I would really like to have you introduced to this guy, Gadrian Hoosen, um, and again, the magical people behind the black curtain are going to do something that makes the video play. Uh, my name is Adrian Hoosen. I'm from Bolula, that's in the Gulf of Carpentaria, right in the pocket of the Gulf. And I'm from the Gadawa tribe. The biggest major problem that we have in, in our community is mining. Makata Mine has got a mining lease, and in, all that poison should stay into the mining lease. They have no right to contaminate the river where we live downstream. And, that's why we're standing here fighting hard for our river and our country. And that river was our livelihood. We fished off that river for many years. And our people did fish there for a long, long time, many years. And mining not gonna last, isn't gonna last forever. That's why we fighting hard together. We need to try to find a way in our community, find a job to, for people to get in the community, a job that can last for a lifetime and work in a clean environment. Um. So when people like Gadrian Hussein first raised concerns that runoff from the MacArthur mine was poisoning the fish in their rivers, Glencore Extrata said, it's fine. Um, but an independent report, partly compiled from the mine's own records, found unsafe amounts of lead in nine out of every ten fish caught in a nearby creek. Um, this is in the mine's first defence. Uh, a couple of years back, um, a diesel, 28,000 litres of diesel just leaked into the soil before um, people spotted a, a pipe that was busted. Um, 
Uh, incidentally, if you want to find out more about what these guys are working for and calling for, they've, I've just sorted this morning that they've got a new petition up on change.org. So maybe head there and, and see if you can Google it. Um, Look, it's not like the whole issue of um, contaminated land and water from mining is a new problem. Lead and copper mines from the Roman Empire were still poisoning the Spanish um, waters in the Tinto region. Name's not a coincidence, by the way. Rio Tinto, tainted waters. Um, over 1,000 years later. Now, Gadrian pointed out that the people in his community could do a great job of cleaning up the mess that MacArthur Mine has made in their area if the company would stump up the cash for it. Sounds like a pretty good idea to me. In fact, Australia has a whole lot of dam damaged and contaminated mining land. Um, it's quite dangerous to leave these massive big holes in the ground, right? There's a, land is a funny thing, you know? It's, it's perfectly healthy if you just kind of leave it to do its own thing dig masses of it up, turn it upside down, particularly ore-rich areas, and all of a sudden it turns into poison. Um, you know, we, we have a whole bunch of holes in the ground. They're not just holes. They're actually, you know, essentially toxic dumps. Now, if we made mining firms pay big enough bonds to cover the costs of rehabilitation, which we're not doing at the moment, then the rehabilitation of that mining land would also potentially be a great way to employ skilled miners and their equipment during the downturns between booms. Look, I think there's, I think there's a bit of a bigger question here, which I'm, I'm hoping we can get into during discussion. What is an economy for? In fact, what is Australia for? We're some of the richest people, not just in the world, but in the history of human civilization. It is just ridiculous to think that we can't solve our biggest problems if we put our minds to it. And then what? You know, imagine an Australia where the way that we live from day to day is closer to the way we want to live from year to year, where the sustainable choice, the choice that leaves the river clean, the fish safe, the land healthy, um, uh, that leaves other sectors of the economy uh, flourishing, is the default choice, where every single one of us gets to go to work in the morning in confidence that we'll have created more value than we've destroyed at the end of our hard-working day. Now, surely anything else is a waste of human talent and ingenuity. Um, so I just want to finish with, you know, one kind of simple question. What if we could learn how to be good ancestors? Thanks, Miriam. Uh, a, a, a number of themes through that. So we've got the issue about corporate social responsibility, we've got government policy and investment and education and so forth. Um, and, and I'm struck by that, that question, what if we could become good ancestors? And I'm, just, I'm still thinking of some aspects on that. But when you describe, given the, given the environment that we've grown up in in, mm. in business and, and how, how the whole business model works, it strikes me just that last comment of yours, um, an environment where the fish is safe, the land's healthy, and um, people head, head off to work knowing that when they come home they're going to leave the... The world a better place at the, the end of the day. The world a better day. place. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm struck by the, um, the movie The Castle and hmm. Daryl Kerrigan, where, um, hmm. where he says, tell them they're dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it even possible? Well, I think it's Given possible. the way we operate. Yeah. I mean, you know... It, it, 
surely something that is more in tune with what we know about the fundamentals of human nature and human psychology, surely it should be possible for humans to create systems that reflect what they'd most deeply desire, right? Um, uh, you know, that, that, that's at the kind of most basic level. At the more kind of um, pragmatic level, you know, I, I realise that, uh, you know, Australian politics is particularly toxic um, in this era. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that, say, acceptance of climate science is divided along left-right lines. Um, you know, personally, I mean, thanks for everybody um, who came along today because um, Naomi Klein's talk was sold out. <laughs> thanks, guys. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I should say that I, I actually agree with um, Naomi that, uh, that our obsession with, um, with small government, our obsession with handing over more and more power to unfettered corporations is one of the biggest things that's blocking action on climate change. But I also agree with her when she says that to change everything, we need everyone. Um, and I think... Um, you know, we can draw a little bit of inspiration from the fact that it was a former minister in the Thatcher government. And by the way, Thatcher did accept the science on climate change. Former minister in the Thatcher government, Lord um, Devon, who described uh, uh, the latest emissions targets from uh, Australia as pathetically low. Um, you know, it was... Um, in, the, uh, in Victoria at the moment, the Victorian Liberals um, are looking at, you know, marketing to investors their green power. They're looking at um, having a real focus on electric vehicles. So it kind of seems like they maybe didn't get invited to the kind of um, anti-environmental liberal Kool-Aid drinking party. <laughs> um, uh, d uh, WA, the, the Premier has just said that he thinks that the future of their electricity sector is going to be based on renewables. So, I mean, there's a few different kind of signs of hope here. I think, in terms of the kind of political doability of this. Mm -hmm. um, also, I mean, if you think that a sovereign wealth fund is some kind of pinko Scandinavian idea, actually, Alaska has one too, um, and it hands out free money to its citizens every year. Yeah. 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 So I'm moving to this Alaska. Is possible. <laughs> Not. <laughs> uh, so, so let's let's move to that um, environment that you described. You know, to deal with, so low carbon mm. development. Mm. Um, more sustainable approaches to business. What if you ruled Australia? Where would you start with this? Oh God! So if you if you were in Tony Abbott, no seat, one should rule Australia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you were the wise uh, guide who was in charge of the country at a particular no. time, <laughs> oh God! Where horrible. would you start? Um, so no, look, after the luck, how do you how do, how would you, what's your recipe for creating the new luck? <laughs> um, so. so you know, my, my philosophy on this is that we need a mix of um, national level, top-down, sensible policies, and we need bottom-up, creative, ground-driven policies. And you know, like ideally, what you want is for those to meet in the middle in a mutually supportive way. Um, if we don't have the sensible, top-down stuff, and some of that's like the obvious stuff that I mentioned earlier, you know, like that we should be um, spending more on transport infrastructure. We should be dealing with the legacy of um, urban design that means that so much of us get 
get stuck in traffic for so many hours of every day, which is a big drain on productivity, on the ability to do more constructive things with our time. You know, there's a big project there that we could do that would actually have significant economic benefits. Um, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of, you know, quite practical things to do with, um, you know, providing just a little, a little bit of support. It doesn't necessarily need to be hugely expensive um, to help uh, companies across all sectors to access the latest research um, on, you know, how they can essentially compete on value rather than costs, as I was saying earlier, you know. So that's, that's, that's some stuff that you can have governments um, doing. You know, sometimes that's better done at a federal level. Sometimes it's better done at a state level. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, we, if, if, if everything's all screwed up at one level, we can still look at hope for positive change somewhere mm -hmm. else. Um, the other thing was I really wanted to play a video that I did um, with a woman I came across this week called Amanda Carl from the Centre for Social Change in Queensland. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I did it on my iPhone and it doesn't, it doesn't work on there. Um, but uh, we were having a great um, conversation about the work that she's doing with She's been getting called into communities. Um, you know, she, she basically does economic development work, economic development consultancy. She's been getting called into communities that have had coal or that are potentially about to get coal uh, by people saying, um, can you help us think of a future beyond coal? Because, you know, it's kind of hard for us to see that at the moment. Where are the jobs going to yeah. come from? And so all that she does is go in, she talks to, you know, counsellors, to business people, to people in the community, um, and, and says... Okay, what are the resources that you have? Uh, and in the process of that conversation, people start thinking, "Ah, oh, actually, there are other things that we can do." You know, we, we you know, we have we have fishing, we have tourism, we have not just international tourism, but you know, grey nomads. Um, you know, we have student backpackers. We have a whole lot of things that we can do with vocational education and training. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of different things that you can do with the resources that exist in the community that can provide you that sustainable economic renewal from the ground up. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that I find quite inspiring is the work that um, a guy called Gunter Pauli does, mm -hmm. which is, again, going into, a, you know, like a very local, um, very local economic scale, talking to people about what are the, race, the wastes within a community that can be turned into resources. So this is that whole kind of industrial ecology concept. Because the fact is, you know, it's, it's not just coal that has a limited future. It's the most obvious one now. But in the long run, resources are limited. You know, we live on a finite planet um, and there is so much potential value. It could be, we could have so much more flourishing economy that was actually nicer to live with in a lot of ways if we learned how um, to essentially just to bring it within ecological limits, right? So to have um, different types of products be made in a way that, you know, they're designed to be reused use. They're designed to be pulled apart and, and remade again. They're designed for that kind of low energy footprint. So, that, so uh, Gunter Pauli is, from memory, the blue economy? That's the that? yeah, So that's he decided the that the green uh, tinge was too divisive. <laughs> so he came up with the whole blue economy <laughs> approach. And the other one that struck me was the circular economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is... Very sexy uh, phrase now. Uh, uh, yeah. the, the World Economic yeah. Forum has a project on the yes. circular economy. Yeah. So, hey, can, yeah. can we get these guys to ask questions as I'm well? just about to. Oh, I was about to finish with that point. Yeah, sorry. And then, so what Miriam would like to do is to give you a couple of minutes to actually... Um, talk to the person next to you. Have I, have I got this right? Yeah. Yep. And then we'd like to see if there's a, a, a great question that comes out of that that we can put and have a discussion about. So do you want, do we want, maybe just have a little bit of light so people can yeah. see each other, is that? 
So we'll give, you, we'll give you one minute. We'll give talk you to the person next to. Yeah. If you if you think the person next to you has a fantastic question, I want you to encourage them to get up and yeah. ask it. That's true. And if you're on your own, can you find someone? <laughs> and and join in the group next to you. So if you're sitting alone and you would like to talk to someone else, just join in. And then we've got the microphones there and there. We'll draw you back now. <laughs> Excellent. So the conversation if, um, after this is finished is just going to be so good, I can so tell. Good. So we've got, um, we've got the microphone down the front. I really hate to interrupt and I, you and there. I, and I really yeah. want to encourage any women in the audience to stand yeah. up and ask a yeah. question. No, no it doesn't the mean the men can't ask. I'm just, I'm just giving extra encouragement <laughs> to women to jump up, right. get to the front of the queue. Thank you. So we've got uh, microphone number one here. So if you could come down there and and please keep your, uh, identify yourself. Please keep your questions short if you could, and we'll, so we can get through as many um, and have a good conversation. Thank you. Okay, so first I need to say that I workshopped this question with my daughter, okay? <laughs> great uh, move. I'm a great uh, um, keen reader of Ross Gittins, and mm. uh, for the last couple of years he's been advocating the, the idea we live in a society, we don't live in an economy, which is very much in keeping with the theme. Um, so where, where do we change our focus in either the universities or the economists that are reporting on the uh, economy versus society? Where, where do we take, how do we change? Mm. God, that's a great question. Oh, God, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Um, it, it, so f for years at the Centre for Policy Development, um, we did research on, you know, essentially the kind of mainstream economic arguments in favour of ideas that are, are inherently good, right? Um, and pointing out all of the cases in which a very strong, um, very credible economic argument is on the same side as um, arguments for putting people and the planet first. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's quite a useful thing to do in a society where, you know, we, we do keep on mistaking GDP, which was never intended to be a measure of mm. progress, as a measure of progress. You know, I think it's useful to, um, to highlight those cases in which the strong economic arguments and the strong social arguments are, are on the same side. Um, but more broadly, fundamentally, it's really clear. The economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of society Society is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. Um, and, you know, we, I think that we just need to have more of these kinds of conversations where we think about, okay, what is the kind of, what is the activity that we can do um, that sustains us, that meets those basic human needs, you know, the need for shelter, the need for entertainment, um, the need for inspiration, the need for food, the need for clothing. Um, you know, if we 
you know, refocus. Because I don't think we should stop talking about those things. And those things are economic things. Um, so I don't necessarily think that people who care about, you know, a more caring society should have to talk um, about about how we get there without ever mentioning any economic issues. Um, I do, however, think that there's, there is something that we should think about about the kind of the focus of the conversation. I'm not, I'm not sure if I kind of complied with this advice or this idea in, in the talk that I just give, gave, but there is a whole lot of um, psychological research that shows that essentially if you make people, if you prime people to think about money, if you prime people to think about loss of money, financial loss, um, they become less compassionate, right? Mm -hmm. These are the kind of field-tested um, psych surveys. You know, even if you show people like a, you know, a, a picture of a dollar before they're going into, you know, kind of some kind of test situation, they then act less compassionate in that test situation. Uh, that, that's a weird and disturbing kind of factor. So, you know, I do think that. Um, I don't know. I mean, money, right? It's, it's a collective hallucination. It doesn't exist except that we put value into it, you know, like justice. So why don't we spend more time thinking about the collective hallucination of justice and less time thinking about the collective hallucination of money? Yeah. Thank you. Hi, I'm Phil Bradley with Parramatta Climate Action Network, promoting uh, an international climate march on the 27th and 29th of November this year. Look forward to that. Thank you for your and my question, unsolicited plug. Um, See you there. <laughs> the, the IMF estimated this year Australian uh, taxes will subsidise the dirty fossil fuel industry mm. about $41 billion. Why is it that we can't see the clear logic of uh, reinvesting that into clean renewable energy and the greater number of jobs that that will generate than are in the dirty fossil fuel industry? And why is the, has the Australian public been fooled into believing we can have endless economic growth and wasteful throughput of our limited resources when everybody knows it's obvious where we live on a finite planet? Uh -huh. Thank you. Great questions, great questions. Okay, um, try and be quick on this one. So, um, why are we still subsidising uh, mining? Well, the lobby is quite powerful. Uh, while the mining may only represent 2% of employment, it has 15% of um, lobbyists on the federal lobbying register. Um, so, it's outsized um, spending, I think, helps to create that kind of Dutch disease of the mind in Australia. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, we are in danger of seeing crony capitalism uh, as... Well, we, I think we have a form of crony capitalism capitalism actually in Australia now. Um, and let me be really clear, doing, doing what the federal government is doing, doing what some of the state governments are doing uh, in you know, backing mining over other industries, that's not free market, that's not neoliberalism, okay? That's rewarding mates and punishing people who are not your mates, you know? If you genuinely were uh, a true economic liberal believer, you'd be in favour of decentralised renewable energy because it can make markets a whole lot more competitive in that sector. And some people do recognise that. I mean, you, you do have, I think, people, um, you know, particularly in the Western Australian and Tasmanian governments who recognise that. Also, um, forget his name, but um, uh, one of the energy guys here in the New South Wales government you know, is, un, un, does understand that. Uh, often governments forget that in the face of um, very, very noisy influence from vested interests. Um, 
the other thing, the question about um, uh, you know when will we wake up to um, the limits, the limits to material growth? I should say it's. it's I'm not sure that it's that um, necessary or useful to um, point to... Uh, I think it's very important that we recognise that GDP growth is not progress. Um, but fixing climate change, bringing the economy within natural limits, we actually don't know whether that would increase or decrease GDP growth um, over the long term, right? Uh, you know, the, these things are incredibly unpredictable. Um, and, you know, if you look at the scale and speed of change that is necessary to fix climate change, according to what the scientists are telling us, what we're looking at is a very, very fast mass mobilisation with very, you know, like with the whole scale retooling of a whole bunch of um, activity, a whole bunch of sectors, all of that normally clocks up as economic growth. You know, we could be looking at the equivalent of transformation that we saw in World War II um, when, the, you know, a whole bunch of the Allies actively invested in retooling their economies. And during that time, growth was higher. Um, and consumption, consumption was controlled, but health went up. People got healthier during that time. Um, so, so, you know, I think there are different ways of thinking about that. Hi there. Um, my name is Lysia Heath, and I, I'm here as a concerned citizen and voter, I guess, <laughs> no other reason. Um, my question is about policy. You have an extensive background in policy. I don't seem to be able to rely on my government... <laughs> Um, or modern government anywhere in terms of policy. And I'm genuinely interested in why there is a lack of policy generation within mm. politics now. Mm. I don't want to romanticise the past of politics because there's, there's a lot of bad, but there used to be policy frameworks and policy engineers with, within mm. politics. Mm. And there seems to be a massive void on that front now and they rely more on external providers, think tanks, IPA, whatever that happens to be, to feed policy back. And citizens can be concerned about policy, but unless that void within politics is filled, um, a lot of it can be for, for naught. So I'm very interested in your comments on mm, the you. lack of policy mm. within politics. Thank mm. you. Great question. Great question. Um, we brought the audience in specially for you today. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, look, um, so, I mean, uh, I should say that, yes, um, like, uh, fundamentally exciting new policy agendas tend not to come from within parties these days. They tend to come from external sources. Sometimes they are coming from the public service. The public service is still doing a whole lot of great policy development, often gets ignored. Um, you know, I think we need to... Uh, one of the points that we make in um, governomics is that we need to let public servants spend more time serving the public and less time covering their minister's arse. Um, that would be, a, you know, a good sign of progress. Um, but th there's a kind of big kind of structural change going on in politics in most Western democracies, let's call them, um, where they're becoming kind of very hyper-managed, professionalised marketing exercises. And I think part of that is because um, the, the kind of traditional parties, you look at Labour and Liberal, if you look at, um, uh, you know, the Democrats and Republicans, they've kind of lost their their natural, like a big natural constituency as a voting block. Um, so, you know, we have seen the kind of the fragmentation of social groups 
break down, partly as a result of the success of um, past progressive policies, right? So, you know, we grew the middle class, and by growing the middle class, we had less of a big block of oppressed workers to vote en masse in favour of policies that would support their interests as opposed to those of their employers. Um, and, you know, in response to the loss of, you know, any one easily tied up natural constituency, what you have is politicians going around and kind of trying to piece a governing coalition of voters, some of whom care, some of whom don't, um, you know, to, to build... The, their way into an election. Uh, so, so that's kind of the challenge for all of us now is to find new ways of building uh, quite often creative alliances across um, different social groups on different issues. Um, and I think that's quite often why you see more new policy agendas coming from outside of kind of mainstream politics than, than you used to. So we, we're getting a bit tight for time, so if you could mm. keep your question tight and your answer, unfortunately. Um, my Thanks. name's Nancy Olson and I'm also... At this stage, just a concerned citizen and kind of flailing around looking for what I can do to change some things. You came up with, you said a lot of things that I suspect most of us already partly knew, mostly agreed with, some wonderful suggestions, some con things about a conversation. My real question, though, is, is these things are floating around, but the decision makers aren't listening to them. Sometimes they don't even see the problem. Mm. How do we, people, us make the decision makers see the problem and influence them to make some changes. The changes that you're suggesting are wonderful, but a conversation won't take it. We need something practical. Absolutely. Hear, hear. Activism. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> Australia did not get as good as it is now. I know we've left a, a bunch of people behind, but Australia did not get, you know, a, a, a universal healthcare system. You know, it did not get some of the highest minimum wages in the world. It did not get to this point without activism. It wasn't an active, It wasn't an accident. That can take many different forms. Um, you know, if, if marching in the street waving banners is not your thing, there are so many other options. Um, but, but basically... Organising. Um, you know, so so uh, pop onto getup.org.au. Um, there's a whole bunch of different things you can check out. Um, get involved in local community groups that are running local campaigns, whether that's for stuff that's good or against stuff that's bad. Um, you know, there's the transition towns movement, which gives people a good avenue into that. Um, there's yeah. I think that we should have a longer conversation about this when it's finished. Um, but basically, you know, if anybody actually wants to write me an email saying, hey, I want tips of how to get involved, I'm not quite sure how to help out, totally happy to, to write back and, and brainstorm some ideas. Great. So what it's worth, I did try that with our federal local member who said, get up some labour... Um, stooge organisation and wouldn't talk to us. <laughs> you always know you're doing something right when everybody thinks you're a stooge for multiple different Correct. parties. Yes. <laughs> okay, look, we've got a, a bit over a minute left, so um, uh, if you could uh, cut hi. to the chase. Thanks. So a lot of the changes you're talking about um, are going to be coming from the universities and from... I'm 22, so from my generation. And um, when we studied the GFC, they said a lot of the problems from that came from the Harvard Business School and that mode of teaching. Mm. So would you say that the universities in Australia right now are approaching this in a way to enable my generation to make those decisions? Or do you think they're teaching older methods? 
Mm, that's a great question. It depends on the university. Um, uh, so, I'm going to make an, some enemies now. The, the Australian National University's economics department is pretty notorious for having the kind of rusted on old school uh, neoclassical model that doesn't have that much room for alternate ways of thinking about the world. I'm not saying there's not good people in there or that good students haven't come from there. Um, but, you know, I think that Australia could benefit from an extra dose of uh, global student um, movement. Uh, in economics that's happening right now um, to have just essentially more pluralist teaching of economics. There's a website for it. I'll stick it up on, yeah. on that link that I put up earlier, miriamlines.org. I'll put the link to that um, up there if you want to check it out. Uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up. UTS also is doing Yeah, great. absolutely. There's some, there is yeah. some, some good work going on in... in um, UTS Business School yeah. particularly has great ideas. Look, um, I'm really conscious we've started the conversation here and now we've got to wrap up. I'd, I'd urge you to go out, um, get together, see what you can do. There's and um, I'm doing options. book signings now, I think, somewhere. So I've, they've got half an hour for that. You don't have to buy a book. Just come up and have a chat. chat. Yeah. Right. So, look, thank you, Miriam. I think you're a champion in... Um, with chasing these ideas and we need to change things up very quickly. Thank you for your attention. Uh, I look forward to joining you for the rest of the day also. So please put your hands together for me.